Look out, Harry and Meghan. Uncle Andrew is being sued. That means the palace is going to throw even more dirt at you two as a distraction. Want to know what you can do to protect yourselves? I'll talk to the PR guru Paul Blanchard on this week's Pod 20. Welcome to the show, I'm Graham Mack. As well as PR advice for Harry and Meghan, find out why the voice of your sat-nav has a broken heart. And my special guest is Dom Chambers from the In Radio podcast, the podcast about radio. Dom, you've been in broadcasting for 25 years. You're a trustee at the Radio Academy. You've lived all over the country. Where did you grow up? I grew up in two ends of the country, which means I'm extremely comfortable with uh, pretty well wherever I am in the UK. Uh, I'm, I'm a Hampshire boy, and my parents decided, um, for reasons that I think remained obscure, but it would be better if I was at school 250 miles away. So I actually was at school in Yorkshire, and, uh, and, and I loved that as well. So really love Yorkshire, really love Hampshire, and a few other places I've dwelt in in between. So that was boarding school, was it? It was, yeah, yeah. So, what was the idea? Well, isn't it? Isn't it like normally like rich northern people that send their kids to southern boarding schools, or is that just a? <laughs> I, I think I, <laughs> that's a lovely idea. But yeah, I think I think we were the inverse of that. My parents didn't have very much money, but they decided I should go to school in in Yorkshire. It, it was really a Catholic thing. So I see. Was, okay, just to have the, the influence of, of that, really, which you know, no bad thing. It was a wonderful school, uh, run by monks, and uh, so it gave me a kind of Quite, it sort of fueled an inquiring mind, and and one thing about um, a, a kind of monastic type of education is that they were so confident in what they believed in. Things have changed a little bit now, I can tell you, but we're, we're talking 30, 40 years ago. Uh, that they they really taught you to question, and I often think about that when I'm asking the questions in interviews. And and I and I from a young age had a very inquiring mind. I was very keen to know what was going on in the world around me, and even when I was still at school and certainly when I was a teenager, apart from the fact that I would describe my teenage years as a conspiracy to spend as much time in the pub as possible, yeah. I was also, in between sort of rounds, as it were, I was quite keen to know what was going on over the horizon. And, and that started my life, my love and, and lifelong journey of traveling around the UK uh, and having conversations just to originally to see sort of how, what makes this country tick, you know, what, and, and I really enjoyed uh, a, a huge variety of things. I spent time in a squat in the Hume district of Manchester. I, I spent a lot of time in Liverpool as a, as a younger person. I was fascinated by Liverpool. Going to Liverpool almost felt like going to a foreign country. And and, you and, know, and people from Liverpool love that about Liverpool too. Absolutely. I, lo- I love uh, Scousers, Liverpudlians. And in, and in the 80s, when, you know, the, the, the city Matthew went Paris, broke. Yeah. When, when it did, and, you know, there was, I interviewed Derek Hatton on a much later date when he was a, a radio presenter, an interesting career he chose after his, uh, let's say no more. But um, the uh, it was almost like, you know, in those days going to Liverpool was, um, it was, it sort of crossed a, a, a border to, to get in there. And, and in Thatcher's Britain, it very much felt like. You know, you were going to a different place. And, and everywhere in those days, everywhere you went, every pub table, every corner, every newspaper salesman, where, it was one rejoicing, kind of reverberating 
phrase, we got to get the Tories out. <laughs> That's what that, lad, we got to get the Tories out. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, and then you know, it would be an earnest conversation. And then they break out and said, yeah, but the thing is, we've got to get the Tories out. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I actually went up to Liverpool quite recently. Uh, I was a guest of, uh, from my times in Manchester. I got to know the band James and, uh, and have remained very good friends with them. And they were doing something hope and glory in Liverpool. And I had a few hours to kill in, in this city. And I hadn't been there for a long time before heading to the centre as a guest of James. And, um, the, and I decided to recreate a walk I'd done as a student in 1987. And I was more of a writer in those days. And I went round and it was, there had been riots and, and all sorts of very unpromising things had gone on. And I described this walk I went on with uh, a lot of destruction. And, uh, and I was walking through this sort of sea of broken glass. And I stupidly didn't take a name of the street, but I tried to recreate it all those years later in 2017. And, uh, and it was all so different. Um, it was definitely, you know, there had been some investment, but also a lot of integration with refugees. And there was a mosque there that I don't recall seeing before. And that kind of mixture that you get in many parts of the country where affluence and poverty live bang next door to each other. I went on this walk and I found two real lovely deers uh, standing on there. You know, that classic kind of image of, of, of working class women um, buffing up their front step, you know, with that great pride, that home pride. And sort of, you know, Mrs. Moppel um, scarfs on that on their head, and I just bold as brass went up to them. I said, "Listen, this is going to sound really bizarre, but I, I was here thirty years ago, and I wondered if you wouldn't mind talking to me." And, oh, yeah, I would talk to anyone, and um, and and they, and, oh, they were so funny, but uh, a real shade of a, of a of an old past, and um, uh, and and that thing of that spirit of conversation, and uh, I love that. Well, well, we'll talk to anyone. Yeah, and uh, and they told me all these. Uh, so anyway, when I said to them, I, I came up with this anecdote. Right, when I was up here thirty years ago, it was always about getting the Tories out. And then, of course, you had this. The Tories did eventually go, didn't they? Well, and, little uh, did they know at the time, but Thatcher had pretty much given up on Liverpool, hadn't she? Well, that, that, and, and the, absolutely, and um, it wasn't public knowledge, but but she had. She'd basically she, said she'd even suggested yeah. they just let it rot, kind of thing. Sure. I think she'd given up on areas of the north of England. I mean, I think this is going back to that Matthew Paris thing about where, where the key describes the country as going into civil, an ideological civil war. Yeah. And I mean, I've always described the Thatcher years as a as a as a doctor at a you know ministering to the needs of a very sick patient with an appalling bedside manner. Yeah, and and and. You know, so so it was, it was fascinating to to go back there and have those conversations to see how things had had changed. But oh, it's fabulous now! Liverpool's fabulous now. Oh, it it is, and you know, um, it's uh, there was. I mean, I'm not politically aligned, but um, to see the various governments have a go at various parts of the country has been a fascinating thing to witness. Anyway, I did say to these old days, I, you know, it was all about getting the Tories out. Why? You know, and I said, what did you think of the Labour government? And they said, they were as bad as the other lot. <laughs> so I wondered if we could have a good It doesn't matter who you vote for, the government always gets in. Yeah, that's well, the... It, that's the other the thing is, I suspect New Labour didn't have much resonance there. I think it was probably more your traditional... Uh, Labour, but anyway, I think no, they said uh, they're all as bad as each other. Yeah, the, 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 problem, the problem I think that, that with the eighties was it, it heightened 
an excuse for prejudice against working class people and people from Liverpool. And I think that is how we ended up with the disgraceful cover-up over Hillsborough. Because, you know, clearly the police messed up and they lied to the son and the son took the bait and they they lied and they, you know, about whether the gate was pushed open and all this lies and, and worse. You only have to know what the, the front page of the sun said, you know, what all that. But it, it managed to, to carry on because of a prejudice that had built up for working class people, Liverpool people, football fans. Mm. You know, I think if that had been at a rugby match or a tennis match or, you know, I, I don't think they would have got away with it. And even today when they report it, you know, if you look at all the, if you look at the memorial at Anfield of the names of the, the 96, now 97 uh, mm. people who who died at Hillsborough, the first thing, because all their ages are up there, and the first thing that hits you is how young some of them were. I think the youngest was 10, mm. and nearly half of them were under the age of 21. But that's never reported. It's, you know, 96 football fans, not 96, you know, people. People. Uh, and yeah. at nearly half of them you know, children or, or very young adults, that part of it doesn't come. And I still still mm. think that's a hangover from, you know, what, what happened in that time. That, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's allowed it to happen. More from Dom Chambers soon. This is the Pod 20, which is heard on podcast radio on DAB in London, the home counties, Manchester, Birmingham and Glasgow, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. Let's get into the chart now. And at number 20, Football Weekly from The Guardian, Max, Barry and special guests pick over the latest action from the Premier League and beyond. 19. The Jordan B. Peterson Podcast. The podcast that could change the way you think. 18. Football Daily from BBC Radio 5 Live. The latest news, insight, analysis and big name guests from the Premier League, the Football League, Scottish, International and European Football. 17. Sword and Scale. The podcast covering the dark side of humanity and human nature, including murder, rape, dismemberment and cannibalism. The worst monsters are real. 15. Drama Queens, Brooke Payton and Haley are your BFFs. Number 14. On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Fascinating conversations with the most insightful people in the world. Number 13. Tales from the Tannoy with Eleanor Hamilton. Eleanor, on the show, you talk to voice actors. Why has the voice of my satnav got a broken heart? That is John Briggs, who's the voice in the Garmin satnavs, but he's also the voice of Siri. But he's also the guy um, that used to do the weakest link. Do you remember when he'd uh, he'd say, "And uh, Graham is the weakest link," but will the others notice? I do a terrible impression of him. I think I'll leave that to him. But um, he's also the, the the original voice of Siri. So. Right you know, um, in your smartphone and he had a heart attack, but actually his, his heart attack story, he would say himself was not the most interesting thing about his interview. The the most interesting thing for me was the fact that he leads this kind of interesting double life as a funeral celebrant because he says words for money for his job, but he said they don't 
they don't mean anything because they belong to other people. I want to yeah. say words that really mean something. And his views on, uh, you know, how we view um, ce- celebration and death uh, uh, were fascinating, I thought. And and I found really comforting to speak to. And I wasn't expecting him who, you know, this this very assured sounding deep, gruff voice to to be so sensitive and so so caring. I, I, I was quite taken aback by it, but in a really positive way. So that was that was one that I enjoyed. I mean, to be honest, I've enjoyed pretty much all of them. They've just been really good conversations with people who are quite happy to have a an interesting chat. Just amazing and, stories. And all of them. Yeah. Amazing stories, yeah. you know, just amazing. So what podcasts mm-hmm. inspire you? There's quite a lot, really. I mean, I listen to the... Um, I'm quite a bit of a, well, I suppose, a bit of a voiceover nerd. I quite like the uh, the voiceover pod- podcast, but on on the basis of the 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 ones that sort of finding um, business, not necessarily business ideas, but to do with the voiceover industry. So what yeah. the the what the trends are in the industry. There's a couple of girls who I really really like called Nick Redman and Leah Marks, and they do. Um, a really good podcast called The Voiceover Social, which I think was was nominated for a British Podcast Award, um, because they they sort of they don't just go around interviewing other voiceovers. They they sort of find out what the trends are in the industry, and especially with things like um, AI, you yeah. know, the, the the automated voices, which of course we're all kind must of up be, in arms about it. Yeah, this this is a thing where a, 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 a voiceover artist can go into a booth and can record a load of words, and then. Someone can type a, have I got this right? They can type a script and then mm. use the software and the software reads it almost like a human. I can usually tell, but almost like a human. You, is that is that Almost. The and you can tell. And I think that for certain applications, it's fine. Um, and actually possibly things like transport announcements, maybe that would be because people don't really need to hear the beautifully read words they just need to know where they're going so that's the kind of work that may get taken away from people like me at some point but or I tend to do long e-learning programs and you can't get the same information across when there are no natural pauses and there are no kind of little quirky bits of humor in there because most scripts are written with a bit of humor here and there so I I think there's a long way to go there's it's I'm certainly not seeing any kind of change in the in fact, if anything, we're busier than we've been for a long time. I would have thought so because everything's got a voice with it now. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And I think when you think about the cost of making an entire, for example, an e-learning program or a video or whatever, why would you scrimp on the last couple of hundred quid or or whatever to not put a voiceover on it when and and make it sound automated? It just doesn't make any sense. And I think that that's what most most companies who are forward thinking do think. They they just kind of go, no, well, let, let's let's spend the money. It's, it's almost like a, ma- ba- baking a beautiful cake and not putting the icing on it or or just putting a big dollop of icing that doesn't... It needs that um, emotion. And even the stuff like, yeah. you know, there's a lot of work apparently in video games and things like that. Well, that's going to be mm. all emotion about, you know, shoot them ups or, or, yeah. or whatever. It's just not going to work. Uh, no, I've never done any video games, and I know, but I know there are a lot of voiceovers who who make a living doing video yeah. games, and, and yeah, it's acting. It, th- this is what the actors are doing, and doing brilliantly well. Yeah, you know, they 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 love it because they get to perform characters, which is what they're they're doing it for. 
It's um, my, from my the from moment. my toe in the water bit of doing uh, audio books. Although I've done sixty eight audio books since May last year, it is the ones wow. that it's the ones that require the acting that are the most fun. And there's a new yeah. trick I've learned, and I don't know if I should give it away, but it's, I've only learned it in the last few days. But I've got four jobs from it in the last three days. And that is mm. when you look for the audition and they want an American, I think, oh, the hell with it. I'll be an American. And I've actually got some of them and they have no idea I'm British. Really? <laughs> so I've done a Hugh Laurie, yeah. I've got this, I've got this bunged on voice. I'm not going to do it because I'm embarrassed, but I've got this voice that's a bit of like a Morgan Freeman type narrator. And they absolutely love that for like cop wow. stuff. And, you know, you know, if it's, if it's about uh, describing the mist over San Francisco before the murder happened and everything. They absolutely lap it up. And these Yanks have no idea <laughs> that it's a bloke in a booth in Hitchin. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, it is. Uh, but, it is the, it, but, but, but it is the acting that's that's the fun. And the acting is the emotion, bringing the emotion to it. So like yeah. I, like, you, like you say, there will be a place for, the, for this kind of automated stuff, but I can't see it taking over. I just can't. No, I can't. I, I just don't see that it, it will. I mean, I think that the market in some ways is flooded with voiceovers. I think there's a lot of people, especially now. Especially uh, now that somebody's been tipped out of radio like me. That's, that's, you well, know, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's how I got there. <laughs> Certainly in, in the olden days, you know, people would, would either do radio or voiceovers. Or, well, they'd probably do radio and then do voiceovers if they didn't have a, a radio gig. But um yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of actors as well now um, in the market because they're not working. I mean, it's 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 an awful situation for a lot of people to be in, and you cannot blame them for trying to do their best to make a living during a pandemic when there's nothing else out there for them to do. Yeah. Um, the difficulty is that there's probably more more voiceovers or more people saying that they're professional voiceovers than there are jobs, and and it's very very hard now. I think for clients to know who's you know. Who to go to? Well, a good place to start would be listening to the guests on your podcast, Tales from the Tannoy, with Eleanor Hamilton, which is at number 13 this week on the Pod 20. At 12, The Totally Football Show, presented by James Richardson and The Totally Football Show team. 11, Monday Morning Podcast, Bill Burr rants about relationships, sport, and the Illuminati. Number 10, The High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphrey. This week, with the current British number one women's tennis player, Johanna Conta. Number nine, Freakonomics Radio. Discover the hidden side of everything with Stephen J. Dubner, co-author of the Freakonomics books. Eight, Hidden Brain. Shankar Vedantam uses science and storytelling to reveal the unconscious patterns that drive human behaviour. At number seven, No Such Thing as a Fish. The award-winning podcast from the QI offices. This week, Dan, James, Anna and Andrew discuss albatrosses, cheetahs, mangles, rocking chairs, Dolly Parton and plenty more besides. Six, In Radio with Dom Chambers. The podcast about radio. Dom, you mentioned that you went to a monastery boarding school in Yorkshire. What were you listening to? In fact, were you even allowed to have a radio there? Uh Well... Uh, I mean, it, it, like in common with many, many children of the 1970s, um, you know, it was the the radio secreted under the pillow. You know, whether you were at home at mum and dad and a bit grumpy with them because they you, they wouldn't let you uh, stay up to watch the Sweeney. Um, it, it, the radio was the big 
for those of us who went to bed early, too early to go to sleep, you know, radio was our internet. Radio was our connection with the outside world. It was our connection with the music that we liked. Because let's face it, records were quite expensive. Mm. So you had to do a lot of paper rounds um, to, to, to buy an album. I, I remember saving my, with my brother and, and pooling in contributions to save up for, for Blondie's Parallel Lines. I think it cost about four quid in, in 1979. So radio accessed you to everything. And I remember lying uh, in bed at night, listening to Radio Luxembourg, and just sort of transporting my mind to worlds beyond mine. And I loved that. And I, you know, I loved the, uh, the, the voices, uh, some of whom. So who were you listening to? You're probably listening to like Rob Jones and, uh, who was the American guy who wasn't actually American, the cosmic cowboy who did the Marlboro <laughs> Country Music Show? I forget his name. I tend to remember the ones who, who then appeared in, in on Tony Radio Prince, 1. Tony Prince, Tony Prince. Oh, yeah, Kid, Kid Prince, Jensen yeah. was on there, wasn't he, before yeah, he was Radio and um, Peter Powell. Yeah, and Paul there, Burnett right? too. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure about Steve Wright. I think Steve Wright was somewhere on the, on the Europe. I don't know. Um, I know Steve but, Wright was at 210 in Reading, uh, yeah. with, well, actually with Mike Reed, and they did a show called Read and Write. But then oh, Mike... Why that on YouTube? Wow. I don't know, but Mike uh -huh. Reed ended up at Luxembourg. I don't know about Steve yeah. Wright. Yeah. yeah. So that, but that, that's Stuart where, Henry was fabulous on Luxembourg, I yeah, remember, uh, early 80s. Barry Aldist, remember him? Yeah. Um, and uh, so the love of radio came from, from those years of, of, of it fueling the imagination. And I loved hearing about news in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, and I just dream, dreamt of a time when I go there and see these places, which actually happened. Uh, in turning that childhood kind of love of connections with the world through radio into a career, that took a lot longer. And, it, and I didn't – I went through the whole of school and university without ever once thinking I might need to make a decision about what to do for a living. And uh, and then it was – I got my degree. And I, oh, oh now is that moment. What know? was your degree it, in? Uh, I did uh, a degree, not very well, I have to say. I hardly ever turned up. I was too busy uh, sort of having fun and, and educating myself, really, uh, in places like Manchester. But but I did um, – uh, in fact, I have to say, and I'd, I'd like to pay tribute to them right now, that the uh, the University of Surrey awarding me any kind of a degree has to be uh, considered an act of supreme generosity on their behalf because I simply didn't uh, deserve one. I did a degree in history and English, and what I used to do was – I, would, I had a motorbike, and I had a social life in London, a social life in Hampshire. And I used to roar down the A3, and then I'd look up to the left as you get to Guildford, and there's the cathedral, and then that's part of the campus of the University of Surrey, where technically I was, although I was at an affiliated college uh, in, uh, in Roehampton, at Digby Stewart. And, um, and I used to look at it, I thought, well, I'd go to college. So I used to occasionally veer off uh, the A31, and um, and then go into uh, the campus at the University of Surrey, and uh, and walk into a thing, make a pertinent point about Bismarck's foreign policy in 1888, and <laughs> everyone would go, "Who's that?" And then I would get back on my bike and, and head down. Where, you know, I used to do the Hell's Angels bashes and um, uh, you know all sorts of uh, uh, rock and roll funness in in Alsford and Winchester and, and down in Ocean Village in Southampton. So um, so that that's what was really tugging my bike, but I was always fascinated by history. And, um, uh, and so I left uh, university with a most inadequate degree uh, and actually largely went into a, a distinctly underwhelming career, um, which changed completely when I became the boss. And what fact, was it? 
what what was the what was the job? Uh, oh well, I went um, I, when I left university. I did event management, and we we called it party organising in those days. So I was a DJ, and I was just thinking, well, how can I turn that into something vaguely sensible? And uh, and there was a lot of this was very much sort of tax break party scene in London with the with the with the Tory taxes tax break and that that incredible budget of Lawson's in '86 where people had more money or the right people or some people had more money I should say and uh, there was a lot of money being spent and and that world got taken over by the corporates in in the '90s but in those days it was very much in private hands and so I did that and I didn't really like it I didn't actually like doing wearing a black tie and a Grosvenor doing all this stuff for, for excessively wealthy people. But unbeknown to them, I used to nick all the stuff and go and do the Hells Angels battery. And and, 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 and what, what they didn't realise was that you know, I had two, you know those um, those bags that cover your suit, you know, suit. Yeah, yeah. And I had two hanging up. One had my leathers in and the other had a black tie. And I just had to remember to take the right thing and not to turn up to the Grove you know, with my motorhead collection. And uh, <laughs> uh, So but, how did uh, that lead you into radio then? Well, what happened was I left uni in, in 89 and uh, and I thought about journalism because I was a writer. Really. I loved writing. So I rang up my friend Bill Coles, who who, who then was starting his uh, his career, which which led up to him. Mean, he worked as a, was a red-top journalist for many years and uh, is now a, a novel writer. But um, uh, he, he writes books about people uh, who are in government, who he was at Eton with. But um, we'll, we'll leave that to one side for a second. Uh, he was working for a local newspaper in, in Gloucestershire at the time. And I said, can we have a chat? He said, yes, of course. We met in a pub, Pint, and um, and he brought his then girlfriend along, who was a radio producer. And after about sort of 15 seconds, I was less interested in what Bill had said. I was absolutely fascinated by what she had said. I said, that's it. It was like the sort of, uh, you know, soul to pull conversion, a big break in the clouds and the voice from the thunder said, you shall go into radio. And, uh, and and that's what it was. And it just seems so obvious. And I don't know why I hadn't thought of it before. I love radio and I love music. And uh, so, so then it was a question of getting to a hospital radio, which was there was no community radio in those days. So, you know, you've got to find a volunteer sector to, to you know, get your skills going. And I, I joined the hospital radio in um, – it was actually part of St. George's in Tooting, big NHS hospital still there. Uh, but actually, the radio station itself was in what I think would be then called a mental hospital, and uh, off Burntwood Lane in Wandsworth. It's all been built over now. And uh, in fact, I was uh, just uh, someone told me the other day that that building has been turned into an NHS staff building, so it's still in the NHS. And and, and I lived off uh, Burntwood Lane in Wandsworth, and I used to go and I spent hours up there. I delivered plants for a nursery to sort of earn some kind of living. And uh, and I was up there, you know, making little documentaries and uh, having having debates about uh, David Bowie's career with the Tin Machine albums and <laughs> all that stuff, and 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 pre- presenting the obligatory chart show, and you know, wondering what on earth this thing was called Two Unlimited from Holland, and um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I, I was I was I started out like so many people do, wanting the big Radio One show. Uh, in fact that side of things did not work out but what I got was so much better and uh, and I'm so glad as I as I steam steadily into my mid 50s I do not have to earn a living based on uh, the audience figures of my last show so and I, I, I I'm privileged to work in the radio industry yeah but I don't have to work uh, as a radio presenter 
I think you've maybe visited more community stations than well, anyone else I can think of. How many have you visited now? I think that's true. I mean, no one's ever come forward to challenge this. <laughs> it started out as a hobby. Uh, I, I realized very quickly, I mean, you know, don't tell anyone this, but I got a job running a community radio station to set it up when I hadn't really heard of community radio. <laughs> uh, I was working up at Hallam FM, the commercial station in Sheffield. What were you doing and at Hallam? I, uh, I was in the newsroom there. Okay. And, um, and doing some entertainment stuff. And the, um, and I remember what, as there was a story about a, a local radio station coming to somewhere like Chesterfield nearby, and everybody laughed. And I didn't laugh. I thought, actually, that sounds quite sensible. So I sort of spiritually, I think, found community radio before I'd ever heard of it. And But when I got the job to set up Summer Valley FM in 2008, I realized very quickly that community radio was going to form a huge part of the radio industry. And that's exactly what's happened. So slightly as a sort of interest in seeing other people, how they're running their stations. And I love, as I've established in this conversation, traveling around the UK. Um, I started visiting stations and, and, and very Early on in, in that, I, I became the chair of the Community Media Association, which is the national representative body. And so that kind of gave me a bit of a hook. Uh, in answer to your question, I've engaged with well over 100 stations. I've actually visited around 75. Uh, if I include BBC stations that I've worked for and I visit now because of, you know I work uh, across the industry rather than just in the community sector, uh, and one of the things I do is negotiate the relationship between BBC Local Radio and Community Radio. But so, so I would certainly say I've, I've visited over 100. Wow. That's almost as many radio stations as I've been fired from. In Radio with Dom Chambers is at number six this week on the Pod 20. Into the top five now, and at number five is Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. After 25 years at the late night desk, Conan has never made a real and lasting friendship with any of his celebrity guests. So, he started a podcast to fix that. Number four, Shagged, Married, Annoyed. The only way Rosie and Chris Ramsey can have a conversation without being interrupted by a toddler or ending up staring at their phones is by doing a podcast. Number three, Off Menu with Ed Gamble and James Acaster. Ed and James invite special guests into their magical restaurant to choose their favourite starter, main course, side dish, dessert and drink. Their latest guest is the actor and writer Asim Chowdhury. Number two, Crime Junkie, because you can never have enough true crime. And straight in at number one. Short History Of. Each week you'll be transported back in time to witness history's most incredible moments and remarkable people. It's October the 27th, 1962. An American naval destroyer, the USS Beale, chugs through the Caribbean Sea just off the coast of Cuba. Down below, deep beneath the surface, a Soviet B-59 submarine navigates the tropical waters. Both vessels are beyond the red line. They've broken the perimeter that marks the quarantine area recently put in place around the island. But while the US destroyer is allowed to be here, the Soviet sub most certainly isn't. It's carrying a torpedo, 
a nuclear-tipped torpedo. This device has the explosive power of the Hiroshima bomb, and the commander is mere minutes away from giving the order to fire. My name is Paul McGann, and welcome to Short History Of, the show that transports you back in time to witness history's most incredible moments and remarkable people. In this episode, we're in Cuba in the early 1960s, as a confrontation over missiles brings the world closer to nuclear war than any other crisis before or since. From Noiser Podcasts, this is a short history of the Cuban Missile Crisis, part one. A short history of number one this week. And that's it for episode 68 of the Pod 20. Thanks to this week's guest pod stars, Dom Chambers, Eleanor Hamilton, and Paul McGann. Next week, my guests include the PR guru, Paul Blanchard, from the Media Masters podcast. Paul, this week, Virginia Giuffray filed a lawsuit accusing Prince Andrew of sexual assault. Now, PR-wise, there's no way back for Prince Andrew. And it's likely that the palace will once again throw more dirt at Harry and Meghan as a distraction. If you were handling the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's account, how would you position them? It's a million-dollar question, that, really, because I all of this flows from... the. Uh, I mean, the Daily Mail are out to get Meghan. It's n- no, you know, it's not... There's just no ways, two ways about it. And, and you know, whether that's right or wrong is, is is something that we can discuss, but they are out to get them. And a lot of it is based on, I think it's a mixture of things. I, I do think racism comes into it. I uh-huh. think um, Megan's skin color. I also think the fact that she's, you know, North American. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of things. She's taken a different approach to the press than say Kate has done because Kate is very much the traditional you know, heir to the throne's wife, you know, shaking hands, saying pleasant things, whereas Meghan has called out the press regularly and is, you know, comes from Hollywood. I think there's an anti-Hollywood thing there as well. Yeah. Um, I think there's so many things that have added up. And I, I I can see it myself when my own relationships have faltered, um, you know, with people and then you get turned over by the media that a lot of the time when you're reading press um, and it's negative about someone, it's, it, it's not the story that's interesting. It's the story behind the story. And I think Megan has rightly or wrongly fallen out with three or four very powerful media figures behind the scenes. Piers Morgan might be one of them, of course. He was very, very friendly with her at first. They had a falling out and now he's consistently against her. Now, whether he's right or wrong on that. So, so I, I think this is, the, this. we're back down to the sort of the pizza shop manager as he's walking down the stairs from his office to, 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 to greet that fictional table of disgruntled customers is how how he wants to handle it is entirely up to him really and i think megan has decided i I don't i don't blame her nor do i think she's right or wrong but she's clearly taken a view that she didn't want the kind of buddy buddy sycophant type relationships with the press she's she's stood up for herself and you know she's done it in a certain way that's rankled the press and and so on and i think the thing with her father as well is incredibly uh, upsetting really i i mean yeah, having read it about quite a lot of it in detail you can see that he's obviously a very very um vulnerable man you know several health problems no money and you know i, I think there's obviously a huge miscommunication that just happened be- behind before the wedding and um he's handled it in a certain way and he's decided to cooperate with the the press really but for me it's more of a family family 
um, tragedy more than a, a press tragedy. That's 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 the bit that worries me. And if she if she wrote a private letter to her father, it is her copyright, and she's entitled to privacy. But he's also entitled as the recipient of that letter to give it to the papers if he wants legally. Yeah. What I would say is is that a gentlemanly thing to do? Is that something that if I if I if a friend was asking me, should I reveal a private letter from my own daughter to the press? I'd say, what are you thinking about, man? Absolutely <laughs> yeah. not. So yeah. there's a lot there's a lot to this, and I just think it's a tragedy for all concerned. So is there anything she can do then to repair her image with the British press? I don't think so, but I I, I also think that it's gone beyond that now because I don't think she'd want to. She would see that as a defeat. Uh, you know, it, there comes a point in a relationship with someone's relationship with the media and certain press organisations where it's be, it's become damaged beyond repair. And I, I think, you know, the, the Mail, unless they change their editor and five or six years from now things change, then, um, you, you know, you might get a different going on. But I think both sides are so dug in now that that it's probably best best sorted with one of them, you know, quote unquote winning. So if she can't turn around her image, would her, her and Harry be better to just keep quiet for a while then? No, I think they just have to acknowledge that, um, I mean, it comes with the path of the course, isn't it? If you have a Hollywood career, particularly if you marry a royal, you're going to get, I mean, the press have this public interest defence, don't they, with the royals? Because they can say, you know, she's, she's you we're know, exit line to the throne. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Or even though we're, we're technically not with them, though, but yeah, yeah. they're public figures. Yeah. So, you know, this is just a price that they they have to pay. But there's a wider, wider, deeper thing to consider, which is just how far can the press actually go in i mean we're at the the, the cusp here of royals aren't we because they are a family but but you know that letter to her father was an incredibly personal very deep family thing and i can't for me personally i can't see what the public interest is and yeah. and doing that and let's be honest 95 percent of even though there might be a public interest defense let's be honest most people just wanted the salacious bit of gossip yeah you of know course. of the family fallout and that, that's the problem with the press unfortunately so I don't, you know i don't blame the daily mail Want, wanting to do this, morals aside, I mean, there's clear commercial imperative. It would have drove clicks and drove sales on the newsstand. Yeah, yeah. If you'd have got hold of that letter, would you have put it out? Well, if I was him, if I was a father, yeah, uh, and I was desperate for money, I, I would hope that I would still say no. He yeah. obviously was paid for that. Yeah. If I was representing um, her, then I would have tried to find a way to have got it out in a way that they wanted. So I've had this several times where... Um, I mean, probably two or three dozen times now where celebrities and various high profile figures come to me for advice and they've come because the media are about to run a story on them. That's something that they that they want to uh, they don't want in the press, frankly. And and my job there is to, is to persuade them of the inevitability of it is I have no magic wand that says um, that I'm going to be able to make this go away, because wh why would a journalist do that? You know, just just to get a favor from some PR guy that the world doesn't work like that. But what we can do is acknowledge the inevitability of it and then mitigate it as much as possible, do deals or sometimes offer to be a bit more cooperative, either give a longer statement or if there is something that we've got in rebuttal, then we'll actually offer the evidence and then sort of you end up negotiating. Okay, so Mr. Journalist, you've got six things you're going to say. Well, can you not mention that sixth thing because it involves that person's mother or whatever? And could you not mention the medical diagnosis on point five? And for that, we'll give you X, Y, and Z and, you know, a lot more of a cooperative. And most people's human nature is to just say, right, shut you know pull the shutters up not cooperate with them and you know that that's actually the worst thing ever because then it, it, even in corporate life as well is the journalist is then going to run on it and they're going to spend all of that newsprint speculating as to what your motive might have been and what your options are whereas if you 
tell them what your motive was and which what you're going to do about it, then even though there is still a story, you, you, you're losing, you know, you're getting rid of all that damaging acres of newsprint that speculate what you might have done when you already know what you're going to do and then the, the journalists can do that. Yeah. More from Paul Blanchard next week. In the meantime, you can watch extended video chats with my guests on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. And what will happen on the podcast radio chart next week? Will Short History Of still be at the top? Will your favourite podcast be at number one? Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart. Yeah, you can do that. Just make a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.